welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. So today our very special guest is Dr. Charles Leinberger. And in this episode, we are going to talk about film music. So we've talked a bit about film music um, in numerous episodes, but it's usually been a kind of a side topic. But today that is the focus of our conversation. And uh, Charles just has a wealth of knowledge um, with doing research on film music for decades. And it's really fun just to talk with him um, and to hear his stories and his uh, research areas, which is, uh, which is really great. So Ben, tell us a little bit more about Dr. Leinberger. Sure. Charles Francis Leinberger is a professor of music at the University of Texas at El Paso, or UTEP, where he teaches music theory and film musicology. He is the author of Deguelo, No Mercy for the Losers, The Enduring Role of the Solo Trumpet in the Soundtrack of the Old West. That was published in the International Trumpet Guild Journal, 39.3. And also, Ennio Morricone's The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, a film score guide, published by Scarecrow Press in 2004. And he is a contributing author to the Anthology of Music in the Western, Notes from the Frontier, as published by Rutledge, 2011. He is also a freelance trumpet player. When you talk about film music, you're talking about different domains, not just, you know, harmony and melody and and rhythm and timbre, but you, you can't talk about film music without talking about rock and roll, without talking about jazz. Right. Think of, uh, you know, all, all the uh, the MTV era movies like Top Gun and Footloose and Flashdance and Fame or, or in the 60s, uh, uh, Hard Day's Night and Help and uh, Atonality. You have serialism in Jerry Goldsmith's uh, original Planet of the Apes and so on. You can't talk about film music without being ready to talk about not just domains, but different genres. Uh, because there, it, it, it can include anything. There's nothing is excluded from film music. And that's, that's one thing that I find fascinating about it because it, it's so, so multifaceted in that way. So Charles, we are so happy to have you on the podcast uh, to talk with you about music theory and integrating film music into that. And so we're excited to talk with you about your expertise and your background in that. And uh, because as we've talked before, uh, the recording, you know, film music is just something all of our students are listening to, uh, whether they know it or not. You know, they're watching mm-hmm. movies and things like that, streaming uh, on Disney Plus or Netflix, all those things. And so that's an area that we need to be able to talk about in music theory. But before we get to that, we always like to ask our guests just a little bit about how they got into teaching music theory. Um, was it part writing? Um, you know, was it sight singing <laughs> that really got you into it? Or maybe melodic dictation? You know, what got you like turned on to music theory? And, like, that's what I want to do for my career. Well, um, it, it, that took a long time. I, I, I started <laughs> I started my musical life as, as just a band kid in school, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, band was more important than math or science or history. <laughs> 
Um, and I knew I wanted to, uh, to, to get a music degree and I knew I wanted to be a musician. Uh, and my goal was just to play trumpet. Uh, that was like, that was a, everything that made me happy was just playing trumpet. So my, my bachelor's degree is actually in applied trumpet. Uh, where I went to school, uh, Northern Arizona University, at the time, the only options were performance or music ed. And I, I really didn't want to be a music teacher. I didn't want to be a band director. Uh, I thought, you know, I watched my band director in high school, and I thought, man, you know, he spends so much time solving other people's problems. He, he looks <laughs> like he's really stressed out, the poor guy. I don't want to do that. So, uh, so I got a performance degree, and then when I went to graduate school, uh, I went to University of Miami for my master's degree, and there was a trumpet teacher there I, I really wanted to study with. His name is Gilbert Johnson, and at the time, he had just retired from the Philadelphia Orchestra. But I knew uh, getting in as a trumpet major would be really competitive. So I applied as a theory major, because theory was always easy for me, uh, and I got in. So I got my master's degree in music theory, and the joke was theory without composition, that's like bacon without eggs. Uh, but it was th that's what I did. And uh, wait, wait no, theory oh, is oh. the bacon. I feel like theory is the eggs. Uh, <laughs> is definitely the bacon. But what 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 got me really inter originally interested in music theory was in high school. My band director, bless his heart, offered to stay after school and teach a theory class to anyone who just wanted to learn theory. Uh, so that was really my first introduction to music theory, and it was like like I know this already. Um, we, we had a workbook, I, I, I don't remember the name, where you would uh, answer a, a problem and then turn the page to see the answer, right? And, and it was like, well, I already knew the answer. Uh, all of these, yeah, that's going to be one more sharp. And yeah, that's going to be 12-8 meter. And that's going to be, you know, a perfect fifth and so on. So I, I knew theory was something I was good at. And now that, that I've been, uh, or I was, an undergraduate music advisor, I tell students, get a degree in something you know you're already good at, right? <laughs> so that was my thing I was already good at. So, so my master's degree was in, in, uh, in theory, but then uh, after taking like a 12-year break, I went back for the PhD, and I had actually applied as a trumpet major, and then... Before classes started, I went out to dinner with my girlfriend at the time, later my fiance, and now my wife. And I, I said, you know, honey, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I, I, if I get another trumpet degree, you know, it's, it's going to be kind of hard, uh, you know, looking for work because the market's always tough and it's only getting tougher. But what do you think if I got a, a theory degree and then I'd look for a job, uh, you know, teaching theory? And I'd be a, a professor. And then when we got married, you'd be a professor's wife. What do you think about that? And, and she goes, yeah, okay, we'll do that. So, so uh, at, at University of Arizona, the PhD in music theory in, includes uh, two minors, one in music, which was trumpet performance. That was kind of like completed my picture. And then, then they required a, a non-music major, some, hmm. uh, or a minor, a minor in something other than music. And I didn't know what to do. So I, I walked around campus. I went to different departments. I went to communications and journalism. And I might have gone to history and, and some places like that. And I'd walk in and I'd say, hello, uh, I'm Charles Leinberger. I'm a, uh, working on a PhD in music theory. I'm interested in a doctoral minor from your department. And they would look at me kind of strange and go, I don't think we do that. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> But, but then I, I, went to, I went to media arts, 
and they loved the idea. They said, do you have a minute? You need to meet with an advisor right now. Because in media arts, you have all these people talking about uh, film and television and now video games, and they're all frustrated music theorists. They want to <laughs> talk about music and they, you know, in film and in media, but they just don't have the right terminology. Mm. And the idea of having a music theorist in their classroom was really appealing to them. Mm. So they said, whatever, you, whatever we need to do, we're going to make this work. You're going to be, be a media arts minor. And I said, great, I'm a media arts minor. Mm. Well, then my, uh, one of my uh, music professors, uh, Dr. Uh, Timothy Kolasik, a wonderful guy, he's retired now, told me, you know, your, uh, your minor areas of study should enhance your dissertation research. And I said, well, let's see. Trumpet, you know, everyone's writing, doing lecture recitals on trumpet and mouthpieces and lead pipes and stuff. But media arts, how could I do a media arts related theory topic, right? So obviously it, it, the, the idea was to, to, to study a film score. So I started doing some research and I knew I needed to find, uh, knowing that film music was almost always not published in print, had to find an archive somewhere that had some resources and after doing a little digging around, I found out about the Warner Brothers archive at USC and also the Max Steiner archive at Brigham Young. Um, and I went to both of them and, and my, my, uh, we, we watched a whole lot of Max Steiner movies, Gone with the Wind, Casablanca, Key Largo, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, uh, The Big Sleep. And the one that really kind of captured my attention was Now Voyager, this uh, 1942 Betty Davis movie. Uh, that Max Steiner uh, won an Academy Award for his his music. Um, and I thought, well, I'm going to write a dissertation on this. So um, I, I made the arrangements. I went to uh, Warner Brothers. I, I had a, a, they let me uh, use for a while a, uh, a copy of the, the handwritten score, the orchestrated score by Hugo Friedhofer for Now Voyager. Um, and it's a leitmotif score. And my advisor at the time uh, had a lot of experience in analyzing leitmotif composers like Richard Strauss and uh, and uh, Wagner and, uh, and and so many others. Um, and he was intrigued by the idea, but he really didn't know a lot about film music or Max Steiner, which was to my advantage. Uh, you, you don't want to pick a dissertation topic that your advisor knows a, a lot more than you do, because very true. Uh, <laughs> You, you make a little mistake, and they'll know. Um, mm -hmm. But but so that's that's how I ended up uh, uh, it, with a media arts minor. That's how I ended up. Uh, that was my first uh, major uh, film score analysis project. Was my dissertation, and now Voyager. And and I could tell you what happened after the dissertation, but you probably have more questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can we can stop there. I, it, it just made me think uh about you ben and your experience mm -hmm. as a trumpet player who wanted to be a trumpet player and but not a band director and then you know going into totally. theory it's kind of a, a mirror mirror image there it really is we have very similar backgrounds and i really resonated with the people are already writing about mouthpiece types and embouchures and warm-up routines <laughs> it's like how many different warm-up routines mm -hmm. can you possibly theorize for the trumpet mm -hmm. you know but people seem to keep doing it and i guess keep doing it with some success since it keeps going on in perpetuity 
but it just wasn't really something that I thought I could really see myself doing long term. And we have a similar story in that regard, for sure. I found my niche teaching theory, and I really got a lot of fulfillment from it. Um, and I'm sure I'm sure you have as well. And mm-hmm. I have to say, though, a difference. I was not interested in film music at all, really, when I when I did my dissertation. I've kind of come back to it more recently, kind of in relation to uh, my students. You know, what is it that really my students are interested in? And what is it the music that they're consuming on a daily basis? You know, what is it that they're watching on Netflix? What is it that they're watching as Paul said on Disney Plus, and like, why does that music work? You know, what makes the villain? What makes the superhero? Mm-hmm. How has the superhero theme mm-hmm. evolved over the years? Because the superhero theme doesn't necessarily sound the same in the 2010s as it does earlier, you know? So that's the kind of thing that got me going. But, you know, it's so great to have you here because you were interested on it very early on, and that gives you all of this, uh, you know, scaffolding and uh, foundation to build on. Um, mm-hmm. So that's really, that's really a fascinating uh part of your story um, for me you know my follow-up question is how did you get into film music but we already covered that part and maybe we could talk about uh, as a follow-up to kind of my point about some of the different um, approaches to teaching it you know because I think there are people out there that say I really want to incorporate some film music you know maybe it's just something like Darth Vader's theme or something but Mm -hmm. is there a way that you can incorporate that and what are the things that we should know when we go out there and try to incorporate film music into our classes or for designing a specific class? What are the things we could start with um, from your, in your experience? Well, there's, in, in my opinion, there's two very distinct type of students who would be interested in a class on film music. For the music major, people who read music and understand musical terminology uh, it could be more of a of, of a history class, kind of a, maybe a chronology of of composers, starting with people who wrote for silent film and then early sound film. Uh, you know, the the jazz singer and then the Max Steiner scores for RKO and Warner Brothers. Um, you know, through uh, John Williams, Michael Giacchino, James Horner, all you know the the more recent ones, um, but. Uh, because you would expect a music student who's already had some uh, a musical background, but also a music history background, to be able to put things in perspective. You know, like, oh, this person was writing film music the same as Aaron Copeland. And wait, didn't Aaron Copeland do a film score? And this person was writing uh, these film scores the same time as Leonard Bernstein was, you know, did this music and so on. Um, so I'd expect that kind of a, an approach to work well with the music major. But for the non-music major... Uh, I do teach a class um, in film music for non-majors. Uh, they, uh, Bachelor of Arts students can take it for their, what's called the Fine Arts Block Elective. And for them, it's really a matter of, it's like music appreciation goes to the movies. It's not so much a chronology of the most important composers, because that's, that's something that they, they're probably not going to re, you know, remember or, or care too much about. It, it's uh, more, you know, how has going to the movies and what you hear in a movie theater changed and why. You know, going back to a silent film and you'd walk in and you'd hear someone playing ragtime piano. And then uh, the early sound films with, you know, synchronized sound and uh, 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 my mind just went blank, uh, Vitaphone and the early sound on film technology. And then 
uh, stereo sound and uh, Cinerama and VistaVision and CinemaScope. And then you get you the full color widescreen formats and then Dolby Stereo and then digital. And you know, how, how what you hear and what you experience in a movie theater for those two or two and a half hours has changed because of technology, because of economics, because of pop culture, uh, sometimes because of politics. And I found that, you know, Hollywood uh, and, and probably film studios around the world in general uh, don't incorporate new technology to make better movies. Uh, they incorporate new technology to make more money. And if the new technology, whether it's better or not, if it's unproven, they're going to be really hesitant about that. Um, you know, in, in early sound films, sound, early sound film was a very difficult process because sound films lost money and silent films made money. So who would want to make a sound film when you know you can make money with a good silent film? So, so how that has changed over you know, the last 100 plus years. And man, this is a great time to be in a movie audience. We have the best theaters, the best seats, the best digital surround sound, the best digital uh, images, the best CGI of any generation in history. What a great time to be going to the movies. And you get to hear music by all these great composers. It's wonderful. So, so when, I, when I teach the, the class for non-music majors, I, I take that approach. And I found that uh, the uh, James Bueller and David Neumeyer uh, hearing the movies is a, is a really good fit for that, uh, that student population. Yeah, yeah that's great. I always, <clears throat> I always start with my freshman theory classes. One of the first things I'll ask is, what are you listening to right now? Um, mm -hmm. And they tell me, and then I listen to it, and we talk about it in class. Um, a lot of times there's a lot of overlap, you know, but I'll just, while I'm grading something, I'll throw on a couple of their songs in the background that they told me they're listening to or artists that they're listening to and just get a feel for what that sounds like. But one of the common threads is always that they love film music. They, they want to talk about, you know, either video game music or film music, music that they're hearing mm -hmm. in that way. And I'm, I'm always like, oh, I really want to incorporate more of that into my freshman level classes, you know, to, to help reinforce topics we're learning and things like that. But of course, one of the big challenges is that that means transcription. And oftentimes it means transcription at a really high level because there's yes. a lot of parts and there's a lot of things going on. Um, mm -hmm. So do you have any tips or tricks for incorporating that music into the class maybe there are some no things that don't require staff notation that you can use yeah, film music for. man I, i'm i'm really in the same boat um i i i i'd like to be able to incorporate more into the the undergraduate theory sequence um it it's hard to do uh there are things that we come across anyway that can be related to a film music topic. For example, mm -hmm. um, I'm always coming across, you know, the Bach C minor Pasacaglia, and I say, hey, remember that scene in The Godfather during the baptism and you hear this organ music? Well, it's, it's based on this. Does that sound familiar? And they go, oh yeah, yeah, that does sound familiar. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if the, the light motif pops up, uh, you know, I can easily go off and, and, and place a few light motifs on the piano uh, without having to, you know, do much transcription work and so on. But that's something that uh, is hard to do. 
Um, film music does not appear in a lot of undergraduate theory texts, and I understand mm -hmm. why. The same problem with any contemporary music is it's too expensive to yep. license. Yep. Um, so it's it's kind of a, a an, an ongoing problem, and I, w I wish I had a had a better answer for you, but it sounds like you're doing the best you can and. Well, I have definitely stolen from Ben. Um, when I teach mode mixture in theory two, I always include that raised law in minor, and we listen to the various Marvel themes and things like mm -hmm. that um, to hear that kind of superhero sound of that, you know, major sixth in, uh. in a minor key. Um, so I definitely have used some of that music, but they love it. If you can use anything from a TV show, a video game, anything like that in class, mm -hmm. the students are automatically so much more engaged. Yeah. Um, last spring at the Texas SMT, Ben did a, a, a wonderful mm -hmm. presentation that I, I really enjoyed. With Shao Yun. With raised, Shao Yun, yeah. Uh, yeah, with, uh, with the, the raised law um, mm -hmm. in, in minor. Um, and, you know, making for that, uh, that major four chord and and that got me thinking about uh, my composer Ennio Morricone and how he uses what I call a hybrid modality. It's, it's part Aeolian and part Dorian. Mm. So, but before I go into that, would you mind if I just talk about how I ended up researching Ennio Morricone? Yeah, yeah I think that it. would be okay. great. And maybe even for some of our listeners who were born in the year two thousand, give us a brief. <laughs> <laughs> I I just found out that one of my. Um, my theory graders had on her Spotify year long um, um, recap because Spotify does these things where they'll, they'll um, show you the the songs or artists that they listen to the most. That uh, the Note Doctors podcast was on her year long thing. Awesome. So Caroline, if you're listening to this, shout out. <laughs> but she was born probably in the year 2000 or later and mm -hmm. may not know who Ennio Morricone is. So maybe give us a brief little bio of who he was and why okay. he's so important. Okay, so he, he was born in 1928. He, was, uh, he grew up in Rome. He was a, a child prodigy. He went to the, uh, uh, we call it St. Cecilia. They sent to Cecilia Conservatory in Rome, uh, studied composition, studied trumpet. Um, he, he, he was a child prodigy, and uh, he ended up working for RCA uh, as a, a record producer in Rome for many years. Uh, so he, he had a strong classical background, he had a strong pop music background, a strong marketing background. Well, he went to school with, uh, when he was like in fifth or sixth grade with a, a kid named Sergio Leone. And uh, many years later, they, they met again. Uh, Sergio Leone was directing his first full-length feature film, uh, Per un pugno di dolore, or literally for a handful of dollars, or fistful of dollars is how yeah. we know it. Uh, and Morricone was his composer, and so he he wrote uh, these really intriguing scores for these Italian westerns. Some people call them spaghetti westerns, but right. the Italians get very offended when you do that. Um, and and they were unlike anything in in a Hollywood western, right? Hollywood composers like uh, Alfred Newman and Dimitri Tiomkin and Elmer Bernstein, they were writing for these big. 19th century sounding romantic orchestras mm -hmm. and they were writing in major and minor keys and then along comes this this italian and he's writing in these weird modes that's like a like aeolian and dorian and he's throwing in these weird instruments that no one's heard in a film score like mm -hmm. a jews harp or an ocarina 
and and he throws into westerns that take place in the 1860s and 1870s an electric guitar. <laughs> Who would do that? That that doesn't make any sense. It's it's an anachronism. Um, so that was really the, the what I call the antithesis of the of the Hollywood film style, the the film score, right? So Hollywood, these big orchestras, that's our thesis. The opposite is our antithesis. These this European sound. Well, over time, the two come together in a synthesized sound, where Hollywood films started sounding more like the Italians, uh, like um, Two Meals for Sister Sarah is a, a, a Hollywood Western with Clint Eastwood, and that has electric guitar in it. And uh, the Italians started to sound a little more um, Hollywood, maybe not so much. But um, one of the things that, that made his music so unique was that raised law in minor. So the, the way I like to describe his, his hybrid modality is it's like Aeolian and Dorian, in that for the, his harmonies, he uses both the natural and the raised six scale degree. Uh, I call it the the union set. I, I have a diagram with you know with circles that overlap. The the I think it's called a Venn diagram, it, where where his modality is really the union set for for his harmony, uh, the union set of Aeolian and Dorian. But his melodies are made out of the intersection set of Aeolian and Dorian, in that they don't contain the six scale degree at all. Hmm. And then there's there's a subset of that that melody uh, pitch class set um, called the microcell. So when I started researching him uh, for a book, oh, I didn't tell you the backstory of the book. I'll get to that soon. Um, I had read of his, uh, he uses a technique that he calls the microcell technique. And I read that in an article by a very fine Italian musicologist who passed away several years ago, Sergio Michelli. And uh, I got to meet Maestro Morricone in Rome in 2003. My wife uh, and I went there, and uh, I asked him through my interpreter uh, if he could explain the microcell technique, and he said no. <laughs> he, he said, if I, if I explain it, you'll write about it, and other people will imitate it, and I don't want them to do that. Okay, But uh, I actually ended up finding out more about his microcell technique than he wanted me to find out because after my book, I got an email from a, a fellow who said he was uh, kind of an independent researcher. He lived in Rome. Uh, he wrote articles for a Morricone fan magazine, and it interviewed some of Morricone's uh, collaborators, and he had some very important documents for me to see. So I got on a plane and flew to uh, Illinois and met uh, this, this man, and uh, he had in his possession the handwritten uh, score for this cue near the end of The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, where Tuco, Eli Wallach, gets to the graveyard and is searching for the grave where he thinks the gold is buried. Mm -hmm. Are you guys familiar yeah, with that movie? absolutely. Okay, mm -hmm. so the, the cue is called The Ecstasy of Gold. <clears throat> So I had the, a copy of a, the handwritten score. So I did what, what anyone would do. I went home and transcribed it into Finale. And in doing so, <laughs> I, noticed, I noticed this small little group of notes that he manipulated in very clever ways throughout the entire queue. And I thought, well, I wonder if there's a name for that, that technique. And yet I know there's something called the Microsoft technique, but I don't know what it is. So my theory is that that was his Microsoft technique and the microcell is actually a subset of his, his uh, uh, six-note 
melody pitch class set, uh, and so on. And then in the middle of the, all of that is our tonic, which was A. So that was uh, uh, how I ended up uh, knowing that part of his, his modality uh, experiments. And, and when, in fact, when I met with him, he, he played the Dorian scale and said, uh, do you know that scale? And I said, oh, yeah, because I, you use that. I know you use that. Um, let me tell you a little bit. So, so that's my, my story about the, the raised uh, law in, in minor, the raised six scale degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me give you, if we have time, a little bit of backstory on how I ended up researching him after doing a dissertation on Max Steiner. So after a dissertation, what do you want to do? You want to take your dissertation that three people read and turn it into a book so more people can read it. <laughs> well, as it turns out, someone else had just written a book on Max Steiner's Now Voyager. Oh, so, too late. Yes, <laughs> All that time I, wasted. Oh, yeah, and, and, and actually our, our research apparently overlapped. We visited the Max Steiner archive in, uh, at Brigham Young uh, you know, within maybe a few months or a year of each other. Wow. Uh, her name is Kate Dobney. She's a wonderful person. Uh, she wrote uh, a book on Max Steiner's film score for Greenwood Press. Uh, it's called A Film Score Guide. And she ended up being the editor of a series of film score guides for Scarecrow Press. And she asked me if I had researched any composer besides Max Steiner. Well, let me go back in time to when I was a media arts minor. <clears throat> for part of that minor, I needed to take a class called uh, Research Seminar. So I signed up for a research seminar, and, it, and the topic was technology. It was taught by someone from the political science department, and we spent the entire time talking about intellectual property and copyright law and AT&T. And she expected us to dedicate an, a, an immense amount of time to this class. Well, I'm trying to finish my dissertation, so I dropped the class. The next semester, I took research seminar again, and the topic was the films of Clint Eastwood. So so as part of that, I ended up writing a paper on the good, the bad, and the ugly, because both the teacher and I knew that there was something special about the music. I didn't know what it was. Um, So I I wrote a little paper on on Morricone for my my class in graduate school and pretty much forgot about that, finished my dissertation, started teaching theory at UTEP. Well, um, after I wrote a book review on Kate Dobbsney's book on Now Voyager, she said, you know, I'm, I'm editor of a series of books, and, uh, you know, it, did you research any other film composers? And I mentioned my little paper on Ennio Morricone and The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And she said, well, you know, someone was going to write a book on him for our series, but uh, they're not going to do it. Would you like to do it? So I said, yes, right? Because I'm, ten, I'm tenure track. Someone just offered me a book deal. Of course I would say yes. <laughs> so, so I started doing research, and there was obviously a lot to learn because I was so unfamiliar with, with him. Um, then that's how my wife and I ended up going to Rome, and my book was published in uh, 2000 and, uh, 2004, I think. Uh, but Ennio Morricone, for those of you too young to know, really came, came into, to be, became famous through these Italian westerns, the Clint Eastwood so-called spaghetti westerns. Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Uh, he did a wonderful music for Once Upon a Time in the West with uh, Charles Bronson and Henry Fonda. Um, he did other westerns too, some lesser-known westerns, and that was really his his early style period. Yeah, it's then what, he did. He, he, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think we should. We'll we'll have to play uh, in post production a little clip of the 
Because, you know, everyone knows that, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of the that dual uh, kind of what is that a whistle or what? I'm not sure what instrument that is. um, (laughs) Okay, so so in in a typical leitmotif score, every character gets their own leitmotif. In his score, he used that same leitmotif for the three main characters, but with a different sound, a different timbre. Mm. Right. So uh, the Clint Eastwood is a soprano recorder, like the little recorder the kids play. Um, Lee Van Cleef uh, character, everyone calls him Angel Eyes. He's the bad guy. Uh, it was a, a bass ocarina, this ceramic woodwind instrument. But the, the bass form is, is very rare. Um, and then for uh, the ugly, the uh, Eli Wallach character, it was a combination of, of, of uh, someone singing uh, with, with doing wah wah, like doing some of that. And uh, and the, oh, I, I think it was something metallic, like a muted trumpet. But 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 for the ah, ah that part, it was uh, it was a voice. It was a human voice for <laughs> for that character. But every character had a different one. Uh, so so that was his his unique spin on a light motif technique was to use the same theme for the three characters, which which makes sense because deep down inside they're really all the same character, aren't they? They want the they're same all, thing. They're all gunfighters, and they're willing to kill people for the same, you know, buried treasure, literally buried treasure that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. So, so that kind of reflected the sameness of the characters, and yet at the same time, the distinction between the characters, which was in, in, ingenious. I mean, that's just brilliant. Then he was making some Hollywood uh, scores, or, or, or scores for Hollywood films in the... Uh, 80s and 90s. Well, Once Upon a Time in America was actually filmed in Hollywood. It's a Sergio Leone film um, starring uh, Robert De Niro and James Woods. And then for a lot of the 1990s and early 2000s, he was doing, uh, he was working with the Italian director Giuseppe Tornatore, doing these wonderful romantic Italian films. Now, in in Italy, their romantic films are not like our Hollywood rom-coms, right? It's not... A romantic comedy it's it's a romance and they all have to do with with relationships and the passage of time and uh and there is some humor in there and and uh but but it's uh they're really wonderful uh, uh cinema paradiso is is probably the best known example uh, he was nominated for an academy award for malena uh, which is a wonderful uh italian film starring the italian actress uh, monica bellucci who is just beautiful um, and uh, he was doing actually all of uh, Tornatore's scores, and and, um, and and recently Giuseppe Tornatore did a, a documentary on on Morricone called Ennio. So so he uh, people born since two thousand might know some of these Italian films, but um, maybe not so much now. Uh, if they watch the Academy Awards, they would have seen him win the award for his score for. Uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino's Hateful Eight. Mm, yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, so that's probably how most current college students might recognize him uh, from from that uh, that moment in our our film history. Mm-hmm. Well, I find it so interesting as you're talking about his use of instrumentation as a way of um, developing a musical idea mm-hmm. and also about uh, kind of expressing the meaning of the 
the film and I think about other composers that might be doing that now that are just using different sounds and that novelty is what grabs you. You know, I think mm -hmm. about um, like John Williams Jaws theme. Uh, mm -hmm. no, just two notes, right? right? So novel, like so simple, but unlike anything else or like um, like the Hans Zimmer big horn, like the brom that comes in in, uh, in uh, mm -hmm. in, uh, Inception or even the, I don't know if you've watched The Mandalorian, the Disney Oh, Plus, the music's great. The, but the, the, yeah. the, the film score composer Ludwig Göransson, I think, mm -hmm. uses this, hmm. it's kind of like an ocarina type of weird flute yep. sound, which is very not Star Wars like at all. Well, but The but, Mandalorian mm -hmm. is a Western. Right. And so oh. um, I think like thinking about the ways that these composers use instrumentation, not only to express the story, but also to create something that's unique, that stands out, that makes the movie different is such a fascinating thing to think about. Well, or even to completely change the tone of something like i've been watching the crown i've thought of this several times while we've been talking but i've watched been watching season five of the crown and um there's lots of kind of mundane isn't the right word but sort of like normal things happening i guess if you're the queen but they're, they're building up to they're they're ultimately building up to i think the the death of princess diana and so there's all these moments um, where seemingly mundane things are happening, just normal exchanges between family members or whatever. But there's this like aggressive descending half step, low brass kind of sound that's like, and it has the, the partimento, right? It sinks the whole way every time. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really unsettling. Like, <clears throat> like otherwise you might not, feel a whole lot of tension in what's happening at all but that one musical element changes everything and it keeps showing up at these really unique times where you would not expect tense music to occur mm -hmm. but i they've used it now across several episodes and it's very obviously building towards you know the eventual divorce between you know princess diana mm -hmm. and charles and then her eventual death because they've already introduced dodi fayed and all of that so anyway that it's just music can really impact how you're experiencing a dialogue and completely turn it in a direction that it might not go without it. And I think that's what draws our yeah. students to it too. Yes, uh, composers, uh, I mean, the, the kind of the default approach to, to writing music or writing a leitmotif would just be to enhance the mood of the scene that's already there. But if a clever composer will use the music to tell the audience something that they wouldn't otherwise know mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. um, there's a wonderful scene in Now Voyager where uh, the Betty Davis character, she, she goes on a cruise and falls in love with a married man. And she go, comes back home to Boston where she lives with her mother. And the, the married man, his name is Jerry, sends her flowers. And her mother wants to know who sent the flowers. So she confronts uh, Charlotte, the Betty Davis character, and said, where did those flowers come from? And she, and she says, well, they... Uh, they came from New York, the address is on the box, and she goes, you know what I mean, what person sent those flowers? And she doesn't say, but during that scene you hear Jerry's leitmotif, mm. which is Max Steiner's way of letting the audience know what it is that, you know, the secret that Charlotte's keeping. Mm. It's, it's brilliant. Um, to, to do, uh, and, and there's so many examples of, of that in film, and, and uh, Bueller and Neumeyer call it counterpoint. When the, when the music 
is not just there to uh, accompany the film, but actually is, is but by being the opposite of, of what you're experiencing really draws attention to that, uh, to, to the to the to the scene by showing what's opposite of it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, one thing that I'm kind of picking up from from our discussion is that when you talk about film music and you bring that into class or you know maybe it's its own class in your case, it really does require you to address lots of different musical domains. Like you can't talk about film mm-hmm. music and just completely mm-hmm. leave out timbre, you know, like because it's mm-hmm. yeah. central yes. to what's actually going on. You can't mm-hmm. leave out like the narrative because like the music is part of the narrative. You can't leave out a melodic element. Well, are you going to talk about motifs? Hopefully, because like that's what defines the characters mm-hmm. in the film yeah. score are the motifs. You know, it's not just a harmonic approach. I think that's one of the best things that I've kind of found in my teaching is that, you know, asking students, whether it's in a composition assignment or whether it's in just a short, short kind of prompt that they respond to musically is asking questions in all those different domains. What is a particular Mm -hmm. rhythmic cell? Like I asked my students the other day to come up with a rhythmic cell and they're like, what do you mean by rhythmic cell? And I'm like, well, think of like one of the, opening trailers of a movie that you've recently watched what is like the rhythmic bit that defines that because a lot of times it's a repeated thing you know you could take lots of different rhythmic cells and have is them that do indiana jones things. yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was it thinking sounded of, like the raiders uh, of the lost ark yeah, yeah, <laughs> that could be a lot of different things right you know i mean Good. But, but that's they, how the Avengers movie started. Avengers oh, right? is the one I was yeah. thinking of because you all know oh, I'm a big I'm so Marvel old. person. But <laughs> Me too. Yeah, a lot of those but different he... rhythmic cells can really have an impact. You know, what is it that you want to come up with when it's rhythmic cell? And then how does that apply? What timbre comes in next? That that matters. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I agree completely that when you talk about film music, you're talking about different domains, not just, you know, harmony and melody and, and rhythm and timbre. But you, you can't talk about film music without talking about rock and roll, without talking about jazz, right? Think of, uh, you know, all, all the, uh, the MTV era movies like Top Gun and Footloose and Flashdance mm-hmm. and Fame, or, or in the 60s, uh, uh, Hard Day's Night and Help and, uh, and, and the, uh, uh, who was it, uh, who wrote the, the Dirty Harry movies? Uh, Niehaus uh, with these big band jazz sounds. Yeah. So it's, it's like, and uh, atonality, you have serialism in Jerry Goldsmith's uh, original Planet of the Apes and so on. You can't talk about film music without being ready to talk about not just domains, but different genres, uh, because there, it, it can include anything. There's nothing is excluded from film music. And that's, that's one thing that I find fascinating about it, because it, it's so, so multifaceted in that way. So if we, I have theory majors here at DBU. If we have um, students who are interested in doing research in film music, what are some avenues they can take? What are some you okay. know, uncharted territories out there? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the first thing that, that most people learn is that you can't just uh, order a copy of the score <laughs> online, right? Yeah. You, um, I, I'm what, I'm what uh, people uh, describe as an archival researcher. Right. If, if I want to study a film score and there's a copy in an archive somewhere, 
uh, I'll go and, and study it. And you really need to be flexible. It's not like putting Roman numerals on a score. Uh, you really need to to look at it with an open mind and try to figure out what is the composer really trying to do here and how is he doing it. Um, but so so that so that's what I do. I, I don't write a lot about uh, social issues in related film, and I know some people do, and it's very important. Uh, I, Kate Dobney's book and now Voyager talks about the women's films of the World War II era and how because so many men were in the armed services, Warner Brothers very cleverly made uh, movies just for a female audience. <laughs> and and I, that never occurred to me as someone studying film music, what kind of audience that, not uh, not just the studio, but probably the composer had in mind as well. Um, but I'm, I'm a music theorist. I bring the music theory element to film music studies. And, uh, and I really have trouble completing what, what I set out to do without, uh, without being able to look at a score. You know, because in the film, you know, there's, there's sound effects and dialogue going on with the music. And sometimes you, you can't exactly understand what music was going on there. Um, and, and that's one thing I enjoyed about that handwritten score from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly was uh, being able to, to find what I believe is the microcell technique. And yet, with all these things going on, uh, sound effects and so on, you, you, it, it just, just these complex sounds, sounds layered upon other sounds. You know, what, what did the composer really write? It's, it's so hard to tell. Um, so I like to get my hands on a, on a, a manuscript. Uh, the Warner Brothers Archive at USC in Los Angeles has all these scores, I believe up uh, from like the 1940s up through like the mid 70s. So uh, I went there, I was doing a, a, an article for the International Trumpet Guild on the solo trumpet in Westerns. And I went to study Dimitri Tiomkin's music for Rio Bravo that has this, uh, this trumpet solo in it they call the Degueo, uh, which actually turned out to be a major influence on the Italian Westerns, but that's probably a, a topic for a whole nother discussion. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, uh, so, uh, aspiring film uh, music researchers. Uh, if you're going to do an archive research, some kind of a score analysis, um, there are challenges. Uh, be prepared to do some traveling. Be prepared to uh, maybe spend a little money. Um, but uh, if you're clever, there are scores uh, out there. Um, and, and hopefully that, that situation will improve. Um, you know, there's this horror story of, I think it was MGM uh, throughout hundreds and hundreds of boxes of, of scores and parts, and they ended up in a landfill under a freeway in Los Angeles. Ugh. Have you heard that story? No, that's terrible. No. Yeah, it, and, and uh, there's this one fellow, the uh, editor of the Journal of Film Music, his name is Bill Rosar, who is trying to raise money to dig up these, these boxes of, from the MGM archive that are under a freeway. So, wow. Um, wow. So, so it, it all depends on, on the studio and, and if they're willing to preserve or not preserve uh, these documents that to them are no longer, you know, may have much value because they, they have the film, they have the, the uh, copyright, they own everything. Uh, and if those boxes of, of handwritten scores aren't making them money, why do they need it? Mm -hmm. But for someone who's doing research, uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out what was the composer trying to do and how was he, he or she uh, trying to do it, um, the, the, these are priceless. 
man, I, I, I can't imagine, uh, if it wasn't for the Warner Brothers archive and a few other archives, uh, I, I would have been able to do any, any of the research I, I, I feel comfortable about having finished. I will add on to that, that um, one of the groups that I'm a part of, I think it's a Facebook group, has um, some videos that are available on YouTube through Film Music Analysis um, YouTube. And those have been good, even for just sharing in class. You know, when you play something in class without the score, and I we discussed this a little bit with Nicole Biamonte as well. I said, my students sometimes get lost. I'm playing a pop song, and they're not looking at anything, and they're a bit lost. Or what measure are you talking about? Whereas if they have something in front of them, they can say, look, there, and I point to it, you know? Mm-hmm. And some of the YouTube videos help in class where I can refer to certain parts or sections because they have the score. And a lot of times they have the scene playing with it. Um, It's not a lot of different film scenes, Uh, but there are some that are available on YouTube that you could probably try to incorporate some of those things. Raiders March is on there, for example. mm -hmm. Um, You can see the score reduction with some of the scenes and things and it's really nice to use yeah it's really nice to use but they're not all there there's just a couple ones here and there that people Mm -hmm. put together and uh, one of my students actually I found I was researching and I found out that one of my students had put together some of these score reductions for for Star Wars (laughs) wow so shout out David McCall there you are you'll get some more YouTube followers hopefully from this I think it's really neat to to look at the composer's hand. And when you were doing your research and um, and things, did you was it hard to transcribe? Did you find <laughs> things that were like, are you sure this is the right thing? Or you yeah. know what um, what what was for, that like for Max Steiner and his orchestrator Hugo Friedhofer? It was it was pretty easy. Uh, Max Steiner would would like uh, write funny little notes in the margin and and uh, things like that. Um, for any Morricone, man, that was a challenge because everything's in Italian and he has really bad handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, even my, uh, I, I had a, a good friend and colleague who passed away several years ago who was who would like uh, tr- help translate my correspondences with with Morricone, and he had trouble figuring out what he was what he was trying to say. Um, <laughs> Oh, there was another score of his. Uh, in 2011, I was in Burbank, and I visited the Warner Brothers uh, studio. And the music librarian at the time, who has since retired, uh, was very welcoming and had uh, gone to the trouble of making some of Ho- uh, Morricone's Hollywood film scores available to me. And I ended up uh, with a, a scanned copy of Correspondence, uh, 1994, it's a movie with Michael Douglas and, and uh, Demi Moore based on a Michael Crichton uh, book of the same name. Uh, no, not Correspondence. Um, that's a different, that's a Giuseppe Tornatore. It's uh, Disclosure. That's the name of it. Uh, Disclosure. Michael Crichton book and uh, movie. I can't remember who directed it. Um, but I, but I, I, it's it's so hard to read his handwriting. And, and there was one word that ha- I, I was stuck. For like days, and it was turned out because the photocopy wasn't very good. It was Ottavino, which is the Italian word for piccolo. Yeah, and you would think, well, piccolo is Italian. Why wouldn't they just call it flauto piccolo? But they don't. They call it the Ottavino, 
and it, 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 it was a poorly, his handwriting and part of the first letter was missing on the photocopy, so it was really hard uh, to, to interpret his and interpret it correctly. Uh, you know, and, and, and just like, you know, in the days of Johann Sebastian Bach writing figured bass, they're always looking for shortcuts, right? How to abbreviate things. So they would, uh, he would, uh, in, in one place, in the ecstasy of gold, he would use Roman numerals for the measure numbers, and then when he wanted those measures to appear later, he would just write those Roman numerals again mm. as, as his own shorthand. Uh, Max Steiner would always was always writing come sopra, which means uh, just like the the previous time or something like that. So uh, and 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 if if the previous time is missing, right, that's another problem. If they say this is just like you know, real five Q number two, and you don't have real five Q number two, then it's back to the drawing board. So, <laughs> so there are challenges, you know, because, it, because when a composer writes it, they're not writing for someone to analyze it later. They're, they're writing uh, because they need to deliver a score on time and under budget. Exactly right. I mean, that's, I tell my students all the time is that theory almost almost always comes after the composition right and in film yep. music certainly that's the case yeah. if you have these uh, composers who are working on tight budgets tight timelines they are trying to be as efficient right as possible mm -hmm. so they're using shortcuts and shorthand mm -hmm. um, and in now you know contemporary films they're oftentimes the main composer maybe just writes the theme or the themes mm -hmm. and then there's this army of unknown composers yes. who actually write the music, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. And so it's a very different process, but yeah. it's never with the intention of, okay, this music is going to be studied or perhaps exactly. maybe now they composers might think like that, but mm -hmm. certainly probably not when Morricone was writing his, um, you know, his Western music that he ever thought probably that a, <laughs> a music school would be studying his yes. music, right? Yeah. Well, well, uh, day one of theory one, uh, when I teach it, we, I always quote Walter Piston, who said that music theory is not a set of rules for how music will be written in the future, but it's a set of observations based on how music was written in the past. Absolutely. Yeah. Spot on. Yeah. And, and, and what, what you just referred to a, a second ago reminded me of Hans Zimmer, who is, uh, he's successful because he's a good businessman. Right, he he delivers a score on time and under budget, but does he write every note that you hear? No. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine saw uh, No Time to Die before I saw it, and he said, "Wow, Hans Zimmer music with that big orchestral sound." And then I saw it, and I thought, "That's John Barry from On Her Majesty's Secret Service." <laughs> That's what that big, beautiful orchestral sound is. So, uh, yeah. So so not every note in a score is written by the the person who is the the music director mm -hmm. so to speak uh, but it you know it's 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 a it's a business it's a uh it's very much like an assembly line you know when uh the composer hands off the music to the orchestrator and while the orchestrator's orchestrating it um he's the composer's writing the next score and the conductor is recording the score that came before and there used to be uh, cop copyists, right? The orchestrator would hand the orchestral score to a part copyist who would make handwritten copies for, uh, for the orchestra. And I can't remember who told me the story, but it used to be that it, when they record film scores, they'd always take, have two takes, 
One, to fix the mistakes in the handwritten parts, and two, is what you hear in the film. Well, now that you can create parts literally with the click of a mouse, there's no more mistakes in the scores, so now they record it once. And if you're playing in the orchestra, you need to get it right the first time, or they'll call someone else next time. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's 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 a, a it, even though it's it's a business um, and a craft, uh, the level of artistry is what continues to amaze me and makes it so enjoyable. Well, this has been such a treat to chat with you about um, film music and all kind of thinking about how things come together to you know to make an image and to. Uh, express a story and all the things that go mm -hmm. into writing the music, not just the notes on the page, but the story, how the composer can uh, create extra meaning or other meanings uh, through their music. But we do like to always end our episodes with a little bit of a rapid fire segment with our oh. guests. Wow, nice. <laughs> so, okay. So uh, what we do is we just ask, each of us will ask just a short little question and you just give your just hot take you know one little mm -hmm. bit kind of answer to it and uh and uh, uh we'll have a good time so jen or ben do you have a do you have uh a uh a question i can go i have one you go ben maybe it's too obvious but what you have to tell us your favorite movie my favorite movie um it it is the good the bad and the ugly but not because i i wrote about it um, it, it's great storytelling, it's beautiful cinematography, it's intriguing music, it's, uh, it's well acted. Um, I, 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 I had the pleasure of doing a phone interview with Eli Wallach, and what a funny, sweet man, and a very versatile actor. Um, but yeah, it has everything I look for in a movie. Good guys, bad guys. Awesome. Okay, my question yeah. is, my question is, is there a good um, film score melody or maybe harmony or rhythm or something like that that is good to use in an oral skills class? Ooh. Well, that's wow. a tricky one, Jen. Yeah. <laughs> um, good to use. I'm drawing a blank. Because, I, I, and... I mean, when I think of oral skills, I'm thinking, well, are you looking for a melody for a dictation? Are you looking for something Maybe. for sight singing? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't know where to start. <laughs> I've used Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark before, actually. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a good okay. one. And they know it sort of usually uh, so they can, it makes it easier for mm -hmm. them to sort of review it in their mind. Yeah. And it's not easy, but it's not hard. So. Yeah. Yeah. When, when I'm talking about parallel uh, parallelisms and parallel thirds, I use the the Rocky fanfare. Oh, that's <laughs> good. Yeah. I feel yeah. like we need to have all these little musical clips. Um, in the actual <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. We tried to do the Godfather theme. Some of the oh, ranges yeah. are difficult, though. So, like a, yeah. a lot of times, mm -hmm. if yeah. you try to uh, take a melody or like we did, we tried to do some Zelda excerpts, but then. It was just getting too high or too low, and then you you know you, it's nice to have something mm -hmm. that's really truly singable if you're gonna do it in oral mm -hmm. oral class either mm -hmm. for dictation or whatnot. But yeah, that's a tough question, isn't it? Yeah. 
All right, so mine is thinking um, in maybe you know, 50, 50, 75 years, what are the kind of film scores or movies that are going to be kind of become canon as far as, you know, they are going to be what we're talking about in music theory, music history, kind of like, you know, we have Bra- uh, Brahms pieces or Beethoven's pieces that, you know, we always talk about the Wolfstein uh, uh, sonata, mm-hmm. uh, or we always talk about, you know, um, a certain Mozart sonata form. Um, what film score or uh, film do you think will have that kind of place uh, for us looking ahead? Well, I mean, uh, obviously John Williams is the name that, that, that everyone will recognize the most. He's, you know, just like Be- Beethoven. I mean, everyone knows a little bit about Beethoven. So John Williams, of course, his music will endure the test of time. Um, I can't remember who it was who used to say on the radio that all music was once new, right? And it's 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 a music that that endures because people support it with you know with their concert tickets or their you know, buying recordings or downloading things and so on. So what, what the audience will will support is is what will endure, and uh, there will be some from you know from Max Steiner and Casablanca will still be uh, well-known and, and recognized and, and, uh, and loved in 50 or 75 years. Um, the Italian Westerns, I think so. I'm, I'm optimistic. When they first came out, the critics hated them, but they, they, <laughs> then they had a, a cult following, but they've really uh, co- become part of a serious academic study. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the the Italian westerns and and Morricone and his contemporaries, um, you know. But the, but the the Hollywood sound, it, like I alluded to earlier, is is so many different sounds. It's it's jazz and it's rock and roll and it's orchestral. Um, uh, but but I I believe compared to a lot of other pop music, that film music will be. Like, like I mentioned before we, we started today, that film music will be thought of the, as a classical music of our time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that has to do with the instrumentation? Because often not is orchestral, or is there something else that makes it kind of quote-unquote classical to you, to, in your mind? Oh, now that is a good question because <laughs> be, because there there is there you know there is that that trend back towards the big symphony orchestras sure. and and you know they, they fell out of style in the '60s and '70s and '80s when you had had pop music and it really started with uh, High Noon and Do Not Forsake Me Oh My Darling that had a, a you know a, a movie theme song was a hit song on the radio right. and that never happened before and then you have you know the Beatles movies in the '60s and and then in the '70s, fame and flash dance, and the, the all the MTV era films. Um, and then now we have you know Spike Lee and and film music that is hip hop and funk. And uh, there's just so many genres that are under the umbrella of film music. It's really hard to say that this film music is this, or this music film music in the future will be that, because there's so many different. It, it it just covers too many things, yeah. so it, it's hard to generalize. But uh, when I when I think of the music that will endure, yeah, I, I'm probably thinking of the, of the big orchestral sounds, mm-hmm. Michael Giacchino, James Horner, uh, 
uh, I love Michael Giacchino. He like he likes to write for big orchestras. Yeah. That's great. That's great. So as we wrap up, maybe let our listeners know a little bit about maybe some other project that you're working on or other projects that you, you have out that uh, you could direct uh, our listeners to. And then also uh, where listeners might be able to reach out to you to, if they have questions or want to learn about more about what you're up to. Okay. Well, um, uh, I'm on Facebook. I have uh, – I, I could give out my email address. Is that what – Sure, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Charles L at utep.edu. Um, uh, well, what, the, the, what, what was the other part of your question? Oh, um, uh, maybe kind of your, the projects that oh, you've completed um, or anything well, that you, you know, have currently for, for working the on. Last, for the last eight years, I was the sole undergraduate music advisor. So my, my research was kind of on the back burner. And, and I had a few things that I started earlier that, that kind of made some progress. Uh, but I'm actually right now looking for, you know, a new uh, uh, research project. Uh, I might revisit Max Steiner. Uh, Ennio Morricone uh, passed away a couple of years ago, um, which is, is very sad. But, but he had a, had a long life and wrote a lot of great music, and I'm thankful for that. And, uh, but, you know, there's some challenges to writing about a living composer, too. Uh, because what you write now may not be true <laughs> in the future as they continue to compose and evolve and, and innovate. Um, so I'll have to get back to you on what my next big project will be. Yeah, that's great. And I guess I, I know that was the last question, but I am curious as, as just as you brought up the last point, um, I think for uh, music theorists, so often we are researching music that has been written by dead people, right? You've yes. had the opportunity to analyze and research music by a living composer, uh, which you just mentioned is challenging, right? Because things can change. But mm-hmm. um, what are your recommendations for for music theorists who would be interested in trying to comp- or analyze music that's composed by a living composer and I, maybe reaching I, I, I out would, to them? Yeah, I would encourage that probably uh, over any kind of archival research of something that, that's been... Uh, you know, written in the in you know long ago, in, um, because there's so many so many questions that we can't ask the composers. And man, if we could just ask them a few more questions, how great that would be! So so if you can uh, seek out and find a a living composer, and uh, and there are living composers, and and I think in general composers are nice people, and they they don't mind uh, if you ask questions. Um, that that would really be exciting, and uh, I would strongly en- encourage that. Uh, you know, like like I'll tell composer uh, theory students, you know, that we uh, we don't double the leading tone, right? And wh- well, the great composers didn't do it, and if they were here, we could ask them why. But uh, it, I can tell you, it doesn't sound good. But you know, <laughs> wh- wh- why do they not? Wh- why? What don't they like about the similar octaves? Well, it, you know, if they were here, we could ask them, but they're not. So, <laughs> but this is our theory based on our study of the music of the past that we 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 notice that nine out of ten times they avoid that thing, so there must be something about it, and that's our theory. Mm-hmm. But but it, yeah, asking a living composer uh, about their music, uh, and and and. Like I said, in general, I think composers are nice people, and they'd be willing to answer uh, a lot of questions. So, yes, one seek out living this. composers. And in, in this exact regard, I had my uh, 
research partner last year, Xiao Yun, who's an excellent film music researcher, and I was so lucky to partner with Sean for our paper, asked, developed this whole theory of like key schemes and some Bruce Broughton scores, and he went and asked Bruce about like, you know, was this a particular key scheme between like the uh, scenes that you had crafted for this such and such reason? And then Bruce said, no, is entirely based on the timbre of the low brass. What note wanted to be the arrival of this low brassy timbre? Hmm. And that was the reason why the keys were structured in the way they were. <laughs> just like, okay. It was not a tonal structuring reason. It was a timbre reason. Yeah. And you would have probably great. not known it, but then you ask the person and they tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That so, kind yeah, of puts into know. question all theories right there. Can, you know, are we all just making stuff up? You know, was Bach thinking of something totally different? And we've been saying this one thing because we can't ask him. Yeah. Uh, makes me nervous. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I thought that was interesting add-on. You just made it to the end of another episode of Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review the podcast, and you can always reach us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or show ideas. Thanks for listening. <laughs>